Welcome to another episode of Bioethics for the People. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Devin Stahl, who, according to her student reviews, should be cloned and teach all of the bioethics. And he's Tyler Gibb, who, according to his students, is best described as the goat of bioethics. All right, Tyler, it's your turn today. What do you have for us? All right. All right. I got a case that I think that I've read more about this case than anybody has read about any case in the history of bioethics. <laughs> that, <laughs> is that is possible? quite the, the feat, yeah. <laughs> the claim. Why have you um, read so much about this case? Right. So this case, the, the Terry Schiavo case, is what it's come to be known as, uh, is actually the, the central topic of my dissertation. Ah, uh, yeah. So it was... Um, a labor of love, I guess. So I've read, at that time, I'm sure that other things have been published, but at the time that I finished writing my dissertation, I was confident that I had read everything written about Terry Schiavo. <laughs> <laughs> Books, blogs, uh, miniseries, like everything. Like I had consumed everything about wow. Terry Schiavo. Wow. And this, Schiavo. so this would have been eight years ago? Eight, ten years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I finished it in 2015. And so that was when... Yeah, I even dusted off. I don't know if you do this very often, but I actually dusted off my my actually bound published dissertation. What? I never had my dissertation bound. That Are you is serious? beautiful. I yeah. Really? Yeah, I I had it bound and I got a bound copy for um, a couple of advisors and gave them to them as gifts. And I'm sure that they are sitting on their shelves and never being read either. I so. hope you signed them with love. <laughs> Ooh, I don't. I think I did sign them. You yeah. better have. Anyway. Well, I did publish my dissertation, so I guess I sort of got it bound yeah. eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I pulled the classic grad school, grad student move where I thought, I'm going to publish this. This is brilliant. And then it sat on my shelf for a year and a half, and I picked it up, and I was like, ah, maybe it's not as brilliant as <laughs> it felt at the time. Well, today is your redemption. Today is the yeah. day where all that labor is worth it. <laughs> That's right. I... um. It's going to make it all worth it, all of those years of toil. Okay, so Terry Schiavo. This case fascinates me, obviously, um, because it is really complicated and has a, a cast of characters involved that makes it more complicated mm -hmm. that I think is just um, mostly unknown. I think some of the people who play a role in this case are well-known outside of this case, uh, So, but we'll, we'll get to that. So... Terry Schiavo. What, how, what do you know about Terry Schiavo? Not to put you on the spot, but <laughs> putting you on the spot. A little bit, only because it um, comes up as one of those right to die cases. Um, mm -hmm. So typically I'll teach it in conjunction with a couple other cases, but we just do really bare bones. So she's a one of those three pretty young white women, which I think is, I say it was sort of just, but also in seriousness, like the public cares a lot about a particular kind of person when these cases make headlines because she's certainly not the first person this ever happened to. So why was she the one? And I'm sure you have lots of explanations for that. But yeah, um, she gets seriously hurt. Um, her husband wants to take her off life support. Her parents object. And so it creates this huge what isn't necessarily uncommon. I'm sure you've seen cases like this in the hospital. There's an inter-family fight about what should be done. What's unique about this is it gets um, politicized in a really outrageous way. And so yeah. politicians are involved, the media is involved, and it's this fight about what ought to be done for this woman and what the burden of proof for convincing us that she would or wouldn't have wanted to live in this way in a what we then might have called a vegetative state. And maybe we yeah. have better words for now. Uh, I wish we did have better words. We just <laughs> abbreviate it. <Yeah. laughs> that makes it go away. We just don't say the words. Okay. Yeah, so Terry Schiavo was born in 1963 in Pennsylvania, actually. And so most of this case takes place in Florida. And after uh, a couple of things to note about her uh, as we kind of set the stage is that when she was younger, she had a she struggled with her weight and her body image mm -hmm. and was um, bullied and picked on like through middle school and high school and was quite heavy. Um, at the end of high school, moving into kind of her college years, late teenage years, she went on a couple of um, really extreme diets mm -hmm. and lost a ton of weight and got a lot of social 
um, you know, positive feedback, started going out with boys and started um, getting uh, more socially outgoing and kind of... changed her life in a, in a meaningful way um, for the benefit, for the, for the good. And she was able, I mean, she went to community college and met this, uh, a guy named Michael, Mike Shivo, Michael Shivo, and they started dating and everyone seemed to like them. And, you know, it's kind of a, a really uh, happy time in their lives. At some, at, at a point, maybe uh, late 1980s, 1990-ish, they moved down to Florida where her parents had retired to and they wanted to be in the Tampa area so they could be close to her retired parents while um, they were uh, continuing school and stuff like that. So newlyweds moved to be closer to her retired parents in Florida. Okay. All right. So she continued to have, uh, and some of this is speculation, and so I kind of have to go out and, and say that at the beginning, is that there are vastly different accounts depending on whose uh, perspective you're you're taking here. But at some point during the late 1980s, like 88, 89, Michael and Terry Schiavo um, became interested in uh, having children, and she started to go to a fertility clinic. Um, okay. And she, because she was continuing to have a really kind of extreme diets, weight loss protocol regimen that she was going through, um, she was having tr- uh, fertility issues. Okay. So uh, crash diets tend to not produce healthy outcomes, is, yes. is what I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there, there are other ways um, to accomplish the same goal. But she was having um, trouble having regular periods and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so she was having a hard time getting uh, getting pregnant. She was allegedly, apparently, reportedly uh, drinking massive amounts of iced tea. And so like five gallons a day or something like that. Oh, my gosh. Like, like an outrageous amount of uh, iced tea in order to um, continue to maintain her weight and stuff like that. So through the process of that, it seems in retrospect that she was, um, her malnutrition was an issue as as well as her electrolytes were kind of all out of whack because of this massive amount of uh, iced tea that she was drinking. Mm. Um, There were reports in in the media that she was anorexic or that she had an eating disorder, but that may or may not be true. It's hard to really tell, but she was definitely very concerned about her weight, and also the diet was was kind of wacky as well. So all of that is in backstory. Oh, one more caveat before we get okay. uh, too far into this. Sorry, <laughs> caveat upon caveat. There's a little bit of disagreement between the family members and people who are close to her about actually what we call her. Um, so, like her name. Her name, yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, so Terry uh, is short for Teresa. Okay. And apparent, some reports say that uh, Terry was just almost like a like a diminutive nickname that her family would use, like really close, intimate friends. And the family has bristled a little bit that everyone is calling calls her Terry now mm. because it was it feels too familiar for people who didn't know her, mm. and so. They would prefer her name, her to be referred to as Teresa, which makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But everyone else calls her Terry, so that's just the terminology we use. And also, her last name, Shivo, is how it's commonly pronounced in the media and 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 amongst people who study or read about this. Um, but apparently, the pronunciation, the Italian pronunciation of her last name, is something closer to like Schiavo or something like oh, something more like that. Not even close. Yeah. So we really butchered it. Like the media yes. totally butchered it. Yeah, butchered wow. her first and last name. Which I mean, <laughs> if this is if this is your family member who you care yeah. about, who's in a vulnerable situation, like at least let's get her name right. But yeah. so here we are. Well, so what are you so, gonna say? Are you gonna say I'll say or... I'll say Terry Shivo okay. just because I mean it's kind of the way that everyone does it. But But it's wrong. But no and, and you should ter- and our ter- listeners Teresa should know. Schiavo. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at some time during the night in February of 1990, so I'm going to give a lot of dates, and so I'll, I'll try to keep these in sequential order because it, it, it's important later. Okay. Um, so in February of uh, 1990, mm-hmm. where were, what were you doing in February of 1990? Oh, so I had just turned five. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. I was nine, so... Um, February of 1990, Michael Shiva was working a, a late shift and came home. His wife was already in bed. Terry was already in bed. And at some point during the night, according to his account, he hears uh, a thump and 
he understands that to her her having collapsed in the hallway. So the story is that he comes to bed late. She gets up to use the bathroom or something and passes out in their hallway. Mm-hmm. And so he gets up and tries to uh, revive her, is unsuccessful, calls 911, and starts doing chest compressions there in the hallway. Oh, so her heart stopped. So she right. died. Yeah. Stopped breathing, um, no no heart rate. Um, and after the fact, it seems like this is related to her electrolyte issues and, mm-hmm. and the other things going on. Um, no suspicion at this time of any type of foul play or malicious intent or anything like that from, the, okay. from Michael. Over the course of the next 20 minutes to 30 minutes, the EMS folks show up. They end up shocking her heart. I think they, they reportedly shocked her seven different times, so seven rounds of okay. very, very aggressive CPR, even in the terms of you know, CPR is often aggressive. Mm-hmm. Chest compressions. Eventually, they're able to get her heart restarted, and she um, is able to maintain her heart rate, so return of spontaneous um, circulation. Yeah. However, during that interim, when the heart isn't f- beating, the blood isn't flowing, the oxygen isn't circulating, she suffers massive irrecoverable irrecover- uh, neurological injury, so brain mm-hmm. damage because of a lack of oxygen. Right. She gets transferred to the hospital, and then eventually she stabilizes and um, is kind of in a an equilibrium where she's not getting worse, but she's definitely not getting better, and in a condition that later becomes known as the persistent vegetative state or permanent vegetative state. The terminology, again, is a little squishy. So what that means basically is that everything above her brainstem has been significantly damaged. And so she will have... So people, lots of individuals in persistent vegetative states will have... um, spontaneous respiration, they'll have reflexes, really basic uh, brain functions mm-hmm. that maintain their life, will maintain their um, you know, blood pressure and core temperature and stuff like that, respond to pain in some ways, but not consistently. Mm-hmm. But definitely no interaction. She's not opening her eyes. She's not appreciating anything going on around her. No consciousness. R- no all. consciousness. So, so some of the old literature refers to this type of condition as wakefulness without awareness. It's funny you say that just because I was thinking sometimes people will want to say instead of PVS because vegetative sounds a little dehumanizing, unresponsive mm-hmm. wakefulness syndrome yep. or some, something along those lines, which actually sounds similar to maybe an older terminology. But yeah. And the idea being you still have sleep-wake cycles, but there's no consciousness at all. Right. No consciousness and no perception of uh, what's going on around you, right? Mm-hmm. And so when somebody walks in the room, there's no response, right? If someone... In, pops a balloon, there's no response, right? right? There's no interactivity with the outside world. What the individual is experiencing is unknown. Like we don't we don't know what, what it's like to be in that condition because by definition nobody ever recovers from that definite mm-hmm. that condition. It's a it's a permanent or persistent situation based upon the level of injury and the location of the injury injury from lack of oxygen. So okay. yeah. So not the same as sometimes people recover from coma. This is not that Right. And usually it's the case um, that people, when they have significant brain injuries, that they will um, be in a coma for a period of time. But being in a coma, the way that we commonly understand it, is really a transitory state Mm -hmm. where people will either get better and they'll, quote unquote, progress into a persistent vegetative state or maybe a minimally conscious state or they'll recover. Mm-hmm. Um, or they will deteriorate and they'll pass away. They'll die. I see. And okay. so it, it's unusual to be in that that kind of coma state without any type of movement. And so that's where she was initially, but then progressed, quote unquote, progressed into a persistent vegetative state or PVS. Mm-hmm. So at this time, Michael, so the, the main characters at this point are Michael, her husband, mm-hmm. and her parents, Bob and Mary. Terry's maiden name is Schindler. And so Bob and Mary Schindler are on, uh, and Michael Shivo are the, the, the main people in her life right now. At this time, they are very united. They are mm-hmm. um, very concerned about their daughter. Michael actually gives up his apartment, which was further away from the rehab center where she was transferred to, moves in with his in-laws in order to be closer, to provide good care. Mm-hmm. All indication is that there's a really um, a cohesive unit really trying hard for her to get better. Okay. That's what you they, want. They, yeah, exactly. Um, and they are 
pushing for ag- very aggressive treatments. They are mm-hmm. exploring um, experimental therapies. At one point, she was even taken to uh, University of California at San Francisco, which has an excellent um, state-of-the-art uh, medical center there, to do s- procedure call. It was some sort of stimulator they put inside of her brain to see if it would like okay. re- reanimate some of the electrical stuff, a thalamic, thalamic stimulator was implanted mm-hmm. uh, experimentally that ended up not working. And so during this time, up until about 1992-ish, so for several years, the family was united and very aggressively trying to get her better. At one point, Terry's parents and Michael joined together to sue her primary care doctor and her obstetrician, claiming that they, those doctors either knew or should have known her malnutrition, her other issues going on that precipitated this, and they didn't treat her for it. So it's kind of a little bit of a stretchy um, malpractice claim, but but there was a claim there. Mm-hmm. And actually, it went forward, and one of the doctors settled for his policy limits, which was about $250,000. And then the other doctor ended up settling after some other litigation back and forth for close to, let's see. So the second malpractice case, Michael received about $300,000 as compensation and for for that as the exeter of or the guardian of Terry Shivo. Yeah. And then about $750,000, so three quarters of a million dollars was put into a trust to take um, specifically for the use of her for medical complications and treatment ongoing. Right. Which might have gone through pretty quickly. I mean, the state she's in is a very expensive sort of condition to have. And so my guess is that money didn't pay for even everything. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Not not a lot, right? Yeah. And so that came about in about 1993. So kind of the end of 92, beginning of 93. And in February, actually on Valentine's Day of 1993, um, at there are multiple accounts of, of this uh, interaction, Bob Schindler and Michael Schiavo had an explosive disagreement about who and how this money was being used. Oh, okay. Um, And so they both accused each other of promises being made and assurances and and commitments that had been broken. And prior to this, Michael Schiavo had been appointed through the, the normal process as the guardian of Terry. And so he was empowered without opposition by the Schindlers to make all any and all medical and financial decisions on her behalf. Mm. Um, once that kind of blew up, uh, though that relationship was irretrievably fractured. Okay. They, the, the, it was high animosity from that point on. So 1993 yeah. on. So money and my guess is it's just stressful, right? It's stressful living oh. with your in-laws, but also, well, just maybe in general. <laughs> I don't know. No. I've never done that. But uh, but having to care for somebody who's so in such a grave position. And, and my guess is hope for her recovery is dwindling as years go on. So Michael has come to the conclusion that further aggressive treatment is not going to help, right. that, that this is the state that she's in. And so he is, it seems like from the literature that he is more resigned to this is going to be a long-term chronic care type of situation instead of we're going to get her the best treatment she's going to recover and we're going to move on with our lives so this is three this, years in so three we years know in. this isn't this isn't gonna end yeah. well yeah right but the parents are the, holding out hope yeah neurological injuries as you know are um really difficult to prognosticate meaning sure. that it's really hard to see an injury particularly a, a recent injury and have a really good idea of what that is going to look like long term mm-hmm. and the longer it goes the better information we have about what the prognosis is going to be right and definitely after three years aggressive treatments tried and failed it's pretty clear that this is kind of her status mm-hmm. quo all right. Um, Michael obviously moves out with from the Schindlers. And then later that summer, Bob and Mary Schindler write a letter to Michael. And this is what it says. Let me just read it. Oh, wow. So okay. it, it, it's, it's very long, but uh, here's the important point. So the letter said, on a long-term basis, we would like you to consider giving Terry back to us so we can give her the love and care she deserves. Logistically and realistically, 
you have a life ahead of you. Give this some thought. Are you ready to dedicate the rest of your life to Terry? We are. So let us know your feelings. So, wow. so basically inviting him to recuse himself as a decision maker and mm-hmm. let the family take over and make decisions. Yeah, because he's a young guy. He's in his 20s. He has his whole, I mean, it's sort of, that's sort of a gracious thing that they're doing. It is, yeah. The rest of the letter wasn't quite as gracious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the, gotcha. the kind part. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, and, and Michael, it seems he perceived that as a veiled threat. Uh, mm. uh, it did not. It was not received uh, well. Fair. Okay. And after that point, the relationship continued to be really tough. I, I, specifically, they, they started getting lawyers involved, and so the family. Um, wanted Michael to not be the guardian anymore. They wanted to make decisions mm-hmm. because they they had a suspicion, they had an inkling that he was going to make decisions that would limit aggressive tra- treatment. Right. And they wanted more aggressive treatment. Okay. And so they wanted to remove him and then um, jump back uh, and, and continue the aggressive treatment. He, Michael, felt like he had made a commitment to Terry and that mm-hmm. he knew what she wanted and it was the case that she wouldn't want to live like this. And so he was confident and comfortable making end-of-life decisions with that understanding. The family, Bob and Mary, and all, th- there's a, uh, a brother and a sister actually involved in the, the Schindlers as well. And the brother has gone on to have quite a, an important reputation and role in end-of-life issues. His name is mm-hmm. Bobby Schindler. He's created a foundation in Terry's name and stuff subsequently. Um, but they all believe that, number one, Michael was a suspicious or a unreliable decision maker and number two terry never would have said that because of the way that she was raised she was raised as a a devout roman catholic and Mm -hmm. based upon the the roman catholic church's teachings about end of life and um sanctity of life and and all of those things they believed that terry number one didn't believe that and number two probably never said that either Okay, so so Michael's saying she told me she would never want to live like this. They're saying there's no way, given our family beliefs around this. Catholics don't, well, they might have thought that. It's not a rule that Roman Catholics think that all people in PBS have to stay in that state permanently. Yep. But okay, we'll leave that for another podcast. <laughs> right, yeah, we can talk about that. Okay, so what, what happened, so the interesting point in the case right now are two questions. Number one, does a surrogate have the authority to make an end-of-life decision for their loved one? Mm -hmm. And number two, what's the quality of evidence necessary in order to make that decision? Yeah, hadn't we settled this by 1990? Yes, we had. Okay. (laughs) So the first question gets, got answered in the 1970s. Okay, so a case about a woman named Karen Ann Quinlan. Is that ringing a bell? It is. The, the other, that's the, <laughs> yeah. this is the trifecta that, of, of right. young white women who, who helped us figure out end of life law. You've, exactly. Right. So we got three of them. We got Terry Schiavo or Teresa Schiavo, depending on how you want to pronounce it. We have Karen Ann Quinlan in the 1970s. And then in the early, mid 80s ish, um, we have another case, um, Nancy Cruzan was right. in the 80s and 90s. And then Terry Schiavo was later. Mm-hmm. So the first case, Karen Quinlan was, like you said, a young woman who uh, also ended up in a persistent vegetative state after actually, I think it was a car accident in Missouri. Is that where we're at? No, this was in New Jersey. As you say, uh, you're thinking of the next case. Yeah. Cruzan was in um, Missouri. So Karen Ann Quinlan is in a an accident, maybe involving drugs and alcohol, maybe not, not relevant. Um, but she ends up in a persistent vegetative state, similar to Terry Schiavo, but she is ventilator dependent. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so her location and severity of her injuries made it so that she wasn't able to breathe spontaneously on her own. And she was hooked up to a ventilator. Mm-hmm. After a number of years, the family decided, you know, she really wouldn't want to be hooked up to a machine like this mm-hmm. and then requested the, the doctors to stop that. And this was kind of the first the first time that the family requested a withdrawal of life tr- sustaining treatment. And the family's request was resisted by the hospital. Mm-hmm. So the hospital said, wait a second, is that something that we can really do? Yeah. Is it is that killing, right? To remove mm-hmm. this knowing that she would die, is mm-hmm. that a form of killing? So they're nervous. 
understandably, because yeah. this hadn't really been a case before. Yeah, exactly. And recently in, I think it was in Connecticut. So a, a neighboring state or a close by state in that area, there had been a lawsuit, a really public lawsuit about a doctor being sued or a hospital being sued that kind of put a chill into the, the environment, right? So mm-hmm. everyone's a little bit more cautious than maybe they were normally. Uh, at, that goes up to the, the New Jersey Supreme Court. And the hospital actually wasn't saying, no, we're not going to do this. They were saying, we need someone else to look at this to make sure we're doing the right thing yeah. before get, we do it. Get legal involved. Get legal, right? We need some legal advice. Um, So after some back and forth, and because the doctors and the family weren't necessarily in conflict about this decision, just who and how the decision was being made, eventually it was removed. The ventilator was was stopped and removed, and Karen Quinlan uh, ended up living for about 10 more years. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't realize, and because this is early ventilator practice, right, that even if she wasn't spontaneously breathing initially, the vent being hooked up for so long when they withdrew it she did start spontaneously breathing at that mm-hmm. point they yeah. and they didn't really think that that would be a possibility now we mm-hmm. know now we know <laughs> and the family was actually very happy because the family didn't mm-hmm. want her to die necessarily but they yeah. wanted her to be more comfortable and so yeah. the family's goals were achieved the hospital was satisfied and she ended up living a, a, a fairly um, stable life and persistent vegetative state PVS for almost 10 more years before she died of pneumonia, which is one of the primary ways in which um, people with these types of injuries will pass away. Mm -hmm. But the Quinlan case established the idea that surrogates can make uh, withdrawal withholding decisions on behalf of somebody else. Mm -hmm. So the first, so the first question in the, uh, in the Shivo case was answered by Quinlan. That okay. number one, Michael Shivo does have the authority to make this end of life decision for somebody else. Mm-hmm. To free her from the ventilator. But right. she's not on a yeah. ventilator, right? T- Terry's not. Yeah, that's okay. an interesting point. So what else Terry... would you relieve her from? <laughs> so Terry Shivo was, the, the medical intervention that was keeping her alive was artificial nutrition and hydration. Ah. So she had a feeding tube. Can you remove the feeding tube? That's an interesting question. Is a ventilator the same as a feeding tube? Mm-hmm. Are they both medical interventions? Are they not? Are they different in some ways? Is there some reason why a surrogate could make the decision for a ventilator but not the feeding tube? Mm-hmm. Those those are the questions that we're, we're struggling with early in the Shivo case. So the second question is how, how good of evidence is necessary in order for the surrogate to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, does it have to be written down? Does it have to be notarized? Does it have to be witnessed? All of those questions about the quality of the evidence. And that was answered in the Nancy Cruzan case. So Nancy Cruzan in the 1980s was in a car accident and ended up in a persistent vegetative state. And her family asked that she be removed from the ventilator to be allowed to die. The difference in that case or the the, the new wrinkle in that case was that the state got involved. Missouri is traditionally a much more conservative, um, pol- politically conservative state than New Jersey. The attorney general got involved and said, no, we're not going to allow this because it's basically hearsay. Like there's nothing written down. We don't really know that this is what Nancy would have wanted. Because we're expecting, so we let surrogates make those decisions, but we let them make those decisions as if they were acting like the patient. So mm-hmm. so the idea being that we need some sort of evidence that the patient would have wanted this, not that it's just what the surrogate wants. And so they're exactly. saying there's a burden of proof then. You have to convince us that the patient really wouldn't have wanted this treatment. Right. And so it, I, I misspoke. So in the Cruzan case, it was a feeding tube as well. And so Quinlan was about a ventilator. Cruzan is about a feeding tube. Shire mm-hmm. was about a feeding tube. So in Cruzan, the judge, it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So... Uh, all the way to the top, and they issued a state uh, an order, and they said that the state can require that the family or the surrogate um, ha- they have to provide clear and convincing evidence of the patient's wishes. Yeah, that's a high bar. It is a high bar, and it also wasn't clarified exactly what is clear and convincing. A lot of Supreme Court cases get all the way to the top, orders, decisions are are issued. And then there's still a lot of questions afterwards. Like, (laughs) how do we actually apply this? Right, right. They're just saying what the ruling is. And then states have to then actually apply the ruling. And so, like, make a form 
And I remember this because we went to school in Missouri and yep. advanced directives have a special box for feeding tubes, right? So Correct. in a lot of states, feeding tubes get counted as any other life-sustaining treatment. But in Missouri and a couple other places, you actually have to specifically say, and a feeding tube, because it, yeah. some people think it's slightly different than other end-of-life treatments. Exactly. Um, and eventually the family in Cruzan were able to provide enough information that the state felt like it was clear and convincing evidence of Cruzan's wishes, of Nancy's wishes, and it was removed and she passed away. Whether or not a feeding tube is a medical intervention. And so the, the, the ruling that came out of Quint, the, the idea, the legal norm or legal principle that comes out of Quinlan and Cruzan is that, number one, surrogates can make decisions if they have clear and convincing evidence. And also that medical interventions can be refused. Mm -hmm. And so that, that becomes an interesting question because whether or not... So it's pretty clear that a ventilator is a medical intervention. Like you said, it's less clear that a feeding tube is a medical intervention. But in the state of Florida in 1990, when Shiva was happening, they had legislatively or by statute defined artificial nutrition and hydration as a medical intervention. Well, that seems to settle it then, right? So, and yeah. then everything went smoothly after that. <laughs> yes, no issues, end of story. All right, that was a quick one. No, um, no, it's probably worth true. mentioning, right? Like Quinlan and Cruzan also introduced the ideas of advanced directives. So one way to have clear and convincing evidence is you yourself write it down. So if all of this totally freaks you out and you don't think you'd want to live or you would want to live in a persistent vegetative state, you should write that down. Either way, right? I wouldn't or yes. I would. You should write that down in your state's legal form and hand it to your doctor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and ethics committees, right? So the other thing is that the Supreme Court, is was it the court that said, you should have some sort of mechanism to handle this in-house and stop bringing it before judges. And so the, right. thus the invention of ethics committees. Yeah, in hospitals. Yep, mm -hmm. exactly. All of that stuff kind of uh, percolates out of Quinlan, Cruzan, and then eventually Shivo as well. So, all right. Uh, no, there. that did not answer all of the questions. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so this case uh, continues and continues. And what is really, um, I think, frustrating and inspiring is the dedication of Bob and Mary and also their children, uh, mm -hmm. Bobby. And there's a daughter who's been, who was involved um, a little bit as well. Their absolute dedication to what they believed Terry wanted and what was in her best interest. Mm -hmm. And eventually there are 17 different court hearings about different questions in this case. Wow. And the and the Schindlers lose almost every single one of them. Right. But they continue to bring up these cases. At, at one point it, they were filing petitions to get Michael removed as a surrogate because he had um they accused him of abuse, they accused mm -hmm. him of in uh, causing the injury in the beginning. Oh, wow. They, they accused him of, um, well, he actually did begin uh, a romantic relationship with somebody else. And so they said, oh, he's moved on from Terry. Now we are the be the, the people who are best able to speak on, on her behalf. And so at every one of those junctures, they would file a motion to the judge as, okay, now this is the reason why Michael should be removed. Mm -hmm. Um and now this is the reason why Michael should be removed. And every time that that happens, the court system, because of due process, because of the, the way in which we try to be fair and the way that our society deals with disputes, the judge is obligated to say, okay, we're going to pause everything that's going to go on and we're going to investigate this claim. Right. Because if, if Michael gets his way, then Terry will die and that's irreversible. So you have right. to pause that every time they file a claim. And that's that's hard for both parties, right? So Michael wants, if he really genuinely thinks she wouldn't want this, then seeing her in this state prolonged because her family won't like let him do what he thinks is right is also probably really hard on him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard on the caregivers, the people mm -hmm. who take care of her, who get to take care of her every single day. Mm -hmm. um, and so Michael at this point has decided she would not, would not want to live this way. Mm -hmm. I'm the decision maker. That is a medical intervention that I can refuse. Mm -hmm. I'm going to refuse that. Okay. And then the, the Bob and Mary and uh, their representatives would file motions in order to stop that. And also the, the judge whose lap this landed on, his name is Judge Greer in Florida. And he really um, 
was really inspiring, I think, oh. uh, especially from someone from a, a lawyer's perspective. I rarely ever hear uh, that. Okay, <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? He, this, um, this man, I, I don't know in, uh, much about him because after all of this um, publicity, he's really kind of, um, I'm actually not even sure that he's still alive. I, 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 I hope he is and, and he's well, but he is very, very consistent mm. in his application of Florida law. And he's at least all the published writings and stuff that that have come during the case and afterwards. Just, I think that he actually personally disagreed with Michael Schiavo. I think that he, because of his religious um, background, believed that nutrition hydration was essential and that the um, the stopping of it was um, morally questionable, mm-hmm. at least. Um, but he was able to put that aside and make rulings based upon the law and he was consistent and over the course of what turned into about 15 years of litigation he was he was not overruled a single time on any point of law Hmm. and so he was really consistent and good about that and over 1993 ish is when this all kind of started bubbling up and then in 1998 is when michael actually got through all of the the initial litigation maneuverings and asked Judge Greer to approve the removal of the the artificial nutrition and hydration Mm -hmm. with the expectation that she would die shortly after that. Mm -hmm. That sparked off, obviously, then it becomes an emergency, right? And then petitions are being filed and and other people are getting involved. Like 1998, 1999, 2000, um, there are bench trials on all of these different allegations and um, back and forth. It's uh, as... The, the stack of legal documents is enormous. Um, that I can was see why you like this, this case. case. This is I like... love it. <laughs> <laughs> so many <Yeah>. legal documents. <laughs> so many legal documents. And we're not even to the good part yet. Oh, geez. Yeah. Because I remember this. Because when you said, you said, what were you doing in 1990? And I'm like, I'm five. But I remember this on the news. So this went on for a really long time. Yeah. So it didn't end in it. So spoiler alert, Terry Schiavo died in 2005. Oh, that is such a long so, time. Such a long time to be in this, you know, this back and forth conflict with these, um, you know, people, your in-laws basically mm-hmm. over the question of whether or not this, this woman should live or die. Um, in March of 2001, it got to the point where Judge Greer had gone through all of the, the mechanisms, legal mechanisms, and then ordered that the feeding tube be removed. And so in, in April, after some more um, back and forth, he the feeding tube was removed. That sparked off, obviously, another round of intense legal maneuverings, petitions all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, Judge Greer was asked, you know, motions to recuse himself, um, all kinds of different stuff. And then at, at some point, they stopped making claims in state court, or at the same time, they were making... Um, claims or asking for relief by the federal court system Mm -hmm. and so that kind of put a pause on everything and and one of the federal court judges said well with all of these new hearings all of these new issues new questions new motions i'm going to put an injunction and require that the the nursing home at this time put reinsert the feeding tube in order for us to um work through this oh those poor nurses oh yes i can just imagine like what stress this is on the healthcare team too yeah. Mm-hmm. At this time, the claims against Michael escalated as well. I mean, now there are claims of abuse. There are claims of um, financial um, misappropriation. Really, like not just like we disagree with him. It's like he is now a bad person doing bad things. And mm-hmm. these have to be investigated as well. And so this continues until I think the next big point is 2002. Three, so in 2003, uh, October of 2003. So this is like 18 months later, right? Still going back and forth, and she still is consistently being maintained. So Terry Shivo is very, very stable. That's amazing. Throughout all of this time, which speaks, I think, to the excellent nursing care that she got. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so in October of 2003. The federal court dismissed basically one of the last claims that the Schindlers had about jurisdiction and about 
um, other things. Uh, the governor at the time, do you know the governor in 2003 of Florida? I do. That would be Jeb Bush, right? Jeb Bush, right? Uh, everyone the, knows that, right? <laughs> yeah, the little brother of the sitting president of the United mm-hmm. States. So Jeb Bush gets involved. In October of 2003, so the, the federal government is involved. And at that point, the interest by outside parties exploded. So in 2003, there was, it's kind of the beginning of what has come to be known as like culture wars or um, these really big social political issues that are generating a massive amount of public interest. Um, There's a guy named Randall Terry who organizes, is the leader of a group called Operation Rescue, which is primarily a pro-life anti-abortion activist group network that is very large throughout the country. They would organize civil disobedience they uh, against abortion providers. They would um, block uh, access. And so a lot of the laws that we have now about um, abortion providers who protesters can't like block the doors, they have to be off the sidewalk and all right, of those right. rules were generated because of not exclusively, but because of Randall Terry's organization doing those things and then getting sued for it and making these laws. Okay, so in October, Terry Randall's group gets involved. Another appeal by the Schindlers gets refused. And then in mid-October 2003, Terry Schiavo's feeding tube gets removed again. Wow. So it is like media mayhem at this point, right? So Media they're they're protesting outside of the hospital it's all over the news jeb's getting involved um jesse jackson comes down and has a press conference in front and yeah uh, so you know a civil rights activist and it's at this point from kind of a biopolitical like social commentary perspective that terry shivo really becomes less important than the idea of who Terry Schiavo is becomes mm-hmm. important. So disability rights groups start mm-hmm. getting involved. Um, Randall Terry's group that primarily looks at anti-abortion action is now clasping onto Terry Schiavo's, quote, fight for life and and appropriating that for their own good. Mm-hmm. And it what matters to Terry, Michael, the Schindlers really becomes kind of a secondary issue to all of these other groups and activists who latch on to the case and use it for their own benefit. Yeah. One thing that I found in my research, and I don't know if this is published someplace else, but um, the, the, there's one person we can track this back to, and it's going to surprise you, I think. We, we, <laughs> so, well, oh, please. This is like a bioethics sort of people like exclusive. Breaking news. <laughs> yeah. So... In Florida at, the, at that time, in 2001, 2002, 2003, there was a drive time radio host who was kind of a, a middling um, oh, host, no. wasn't super popular, wasn't uh, unpopular, uh, was in the Tampa Bay area and a couple of other markets, wasn't widely syndicated. Um, but he was contacted by somebody associated or connected with this issue, and he became passionate about fighting for Terry. His name was Glenn Beck. Oh, I knew it. Oh, I did. I've never heard that before. Yeah. So Glenn Beck was a drive time radio host in Florida, got aware of this and started talking about not only this, but all of kind of this, this political issues. And that really sparked his um, popularity. And so people in that area started tuning in, not just for his drive time radio banter, but also because he would have kind of these hot takes about politically charged issues. Terry Schiavo is one that he consistently hammered on. Wow. Wow. As he became more popular in, in 2002, 2003, his syndication expanded. And then in 2003, end of 2003, he went nationwide. And was being broadcast, um, you know, coast to coast, got a huge contract from Headline News. And one thing that he was consistent in was advocating on behalf of Terry's parents. So Mm -hmm. really hammering this issue and took it from kind of a local regional issue that may or may not um, be interesting to a lot of people nationwide. And he Mm -hmm. started talking about Terry Schiavo and the right to life and what these... um, the, the opponents or my, Michael Shivo's folks, people who are supporting him, how they were undermining all of these other like core values of America, kind of like what Glenn Beck 
did at that time. Yeah. Well, so is this the first time I've never thought about this? Because I think of like pro-life organizations are often, um, we're wow. used to them advocating for certain things at the legislative level today that have a lot to do with end-of-life cases. Whereas I think maybe the public thinks of them as more like um, beginning-of-life sort of abortion. Um mm-hmm. Is this really the first time that those like kind of anti-abortion groups are bec- like moving into the area of end of life for people like Terry Schiavo? You think this is like kind of where it starts? I think so. Wow. And 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 kind of the 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 group of people involved would be Glenn Beck mm-hmm. being the, the the spokesperson for so the advocate the mouthpiece for this. Randall Terry, whose organization really kind of got the, who had the experience of, of organizing and mobilizing people around these socially uh, hot button issues. And then Bob, Bob and Mary Schindler's consistent advocation for this point. And so let, pro-life, anti-abortion folks got involved, disability rights folks got involved, um, bodily autonomy, pro-choice um, folks got involved. Um, I mentioned earlier, Jesse Jackson was involved because it was portrayed to him as um, the, the government taking over uh, the rights of parents. And so a lot of really awkward bedfellows in yeah. this um, So Jesse Jackson is, is advocating on behalf of the Schindlers? The Schindlers, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Super interesting. There's a picture that I found of Bob and Mary Schindler Jesse Jackson and Terry uh, Randall Terry, wow. the, uh, <laughs> all on like the stage together. And Interesting. after that point, I think when Jesse Jackson and his folks, people who work with his team, got there and saw the parties, the the players, that they kind of backed off a little bit. Um, like Homer he Simpson into the bushes a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Like, wait a second, this isn't exactly how it was pitched to me. Yeah. Interesting. Um, unsurprisingly, there was another injunction issued, and Terry's feeding tube was reinserted again. And so this is now the second time that court ordered removal of the feeding tube. During this time, Jeb Bush is not backing down. And he uh, calls a special session of the Florida legislature and kind of rams through a law called Terry's Law into Florida. (laughs) It's always best to make laws for particular people. Yes, specifically. And this again, I mean, this is like an entire part of my dissertation is looking at the legislation because it's really unusual for legislative tools to be used to benefit one person. It has, to, I mean, one of the principles of legislation is it has to be applicable to the more than a group of people at least. <laughs> at least and more so, than one. <laughs> yeah. And so this law being crafted in a way that doesn't only apply to Terry, but the set of circumstances in which it applies are so narrow that it only applies to Terry. Is Your name really has to rhyme with Schmary. And... Schmary. <laughs> and you have to be 29 years old at this particular time and in this county. And so all of these caveats. Eventually, that law was deemed to be unconstitutional yeah. because it was so narrow. Right? Yeah. But that, because there was a law, uh, it delayed the entire process again right wow um so that law eventually becomes on uh deemed unconstitutional lots of back and forth about that it goes up to the supreme court um because you know if there's a challenge against state laws the the court of last resort is the supreme court and Mm -hmm. so the supreme court said no that's unconstitutional smacks it down there was um action among uh republican conservative uh, members of the the U.S. legislation, so U.S. Congress gets involved. They start drafting. They have hearings about this, wow. uh, all about this one case, and the just reams and reams and reams of um, decisions and motions and and stuff back and forth. And the Schindlers and Michael Schiavo, like you mentioned earlier, the the money from the malpractice claim was what, what was kind of fueling this. Until about 1998, 2000, and particularly when Terry Randall, as kind of the poster boy for all of the other advocate groups getting involved, then the coffers are basically unlimited. Yeah, there yeah. are There's so much money being poured into this. There's no limit to the number of motions and mm-hmm. lawsuits and, and claims that can be filed back and forth. All right. Fast forward. Spring of 2005. Okay. So spring of 2005, the Supreme Court has weighed in twice now. Mm-hmm. Um, the federal law never never was 
put into the books. It was passed and then found to be unconstitutional. The Florida state law was found to be unconstitutional. Um, the 11th Circuit found that Judge Greer had not had not uh, violated any of his rules or, or obligations. And so eventually every single legal avenue was closed off. Mm-hmm. And in 2005, in March of 2005, uh, the it goes gets remanded back to Judge Greer in Pinellas County, Florida, this local probate court judge. And he says, again, the feeding tube should be removed because Michael's the appropriate decision maker. The decision is appropriate and there's clear and convincing evidence. So it kind of meets all those standards, the same standards that were in place and which he had met almost eight, nine years previously. Wow. So it gets removed. Um, and then basically everybody is just on death watch, basically just waiting for her. She's getting, again, excellent, uh, healthcare, uh, nursing care around the clock in this nursing home. Of course, because of the media sensation that, that this had all, uh, created, there were protests and vigils outside the hospital. There were, um, armed security details transferring the families into and out of for visiting hours. Glenn Beck actually put his, um, his nationwide TV show, uh, on hiatus or on sabbatical or whatever, and started broadcasting from a conference room across the the street from the nursing home, um, Wow. It would, I mean, it was bananas. Oh, that's so sad. So I mean, ultimately, sad. so sad for this family. Yep. Regardless of like sort of how you think this should have gone, this is not how it should have ended. No. Eventually, uh, after almost two weeks, um, she does pass away. She dies mm-hmm. from, you know, the, the typical ways people die from not having a sufficient nutrition and hydration. And she died in March of 2005 so that's 15 years almost you know to the month of when she first had her injury yeah wow that is wild i don't think i really fully appreciated how long that went on and how involved i didn't realize it went to the supreme court twice i did know about like terry's law i remember that just because i've it's so like Mm -hmm. outrageous um but man yeah that is has, do you think there's ever been a single case like this that has created such a legal and media sensation? I I don't. I think it, I think it is kind of the pinnacle of public interest in a highly controversial kind of end of life bioethics case. The, the only other ones that I think, and these are more recent examples, and so maybe there's some bias there. But um, ch- there's one in f- the UK about a little boy named Charlie Gard. Uh, yeah. Recently, mm-hmm. that was really kind of a media, media storm. Um, Jahai McMath is one that we're going to talk about yeah. in a different. Um, and then also um, Jack Vorkian before this. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's more of, of course, the doctor than the patient. But yep. yeah, he becomes such a sensation. But And and legislatively has to also get worked out mm-hmm. if what he's doing is legal or not. But mm-hmm. but this seems, I mean, and in Charlie Gard, you're right, was also a media sensation. So was Jody McBath, but like the the amount of like legal maneuvering seems yeah. pretty extraordinary in Shivo and, and the yeah. longevity of it. Yeah, the the duration of this case is just it, it's shocking, really, that this mm-hmm. is able to continue. But um, yeah, so at the, what the did leg- we learn, Tyler? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's the legacy? <laughs> yeah, the legacy is um, that it's it's really complicated, right? Even though these decisions, these issues had been settled before Michael Shivo and the Schindlers were in conflict, it's it was able to persist and it was able mm-hmm. to continue um, through the legislative process, through the judicial process, through the media. Um, and it, it just speaks, in my mind, and this is kind of, you know, a little bit of a spoiler alert because I know everyone's going to run out and buy my dissertation and, and read it now. Yeah, um, yeah, you can get on ProQuest. <laughs> yeah, I might be able to upload a PDF someplace. I don't know. Oh, we'll, we'll put it on the website. <laughs> no, no, we're not. Um, it, it, it's that at that in 2003, when Randall Terry, who I put a lot of blame on in my in my research, it becomes not about Terry anymore, and yeah. I think that's what's different is that. Jahai McMath 
Charlie Gard, some of the other kind of well-known named cases that we talk about in bioethics, um, at the end of the day, they're mostly still about the person and they have broader implications. But Terry um, became almost an afterthought um, by Mm -hmm. the end of her life. And it's really sad in my mind that the family uh, was not able to come to some sort of mutually agreeable conclusion well before it became out of their control. And because once it gets into like this, like social, uh, you know, social justice, public policy, um, are you pro-life? Are you pro-choice type of debates? Then Terry is, is not the most important person in the conversation anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a sad legacy. I mean, I think it's not, it's, it's interesting how it, how it became so popularized, but these are things that happen all the time. I mean, I'll say I've been a part of many clinical ethics cases where the person who has the authority to make the decision makes a decision other family members don't like, and we have a care conference about it, and we try to get everyone on the same page, and sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't, and we just do the thing that the surrogate, the authorized surrogate tells us to do, and it it doesn't it's not a 15-year battle. It might be a 15-day battle or a 15-month battle, but it's all internal to the hospital. Mm-hmm. It rarely gets outside of that. Um, so it's it's just interesting that this case got so outside of kind of the mechanism. And in early 2000s, it's not like everyone had a f- like super functional ethics committee or even ethics consultation. But just to say, I think, I don't know if it would turn out differently today, but I see it all the time. So this isn't, it's not an unusual case in and of itself. It's just unusual the way it became so expansive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just kind of wrapping up, I I want to read to you what I think. So before we get there, one other issue is that Bob Schindler and Michael Schiavo um, were some of the most stubborn is that the word uh they they were committed to their positions Mm -hmm. and they they would not be moved from those and those two personalities i think drove this initially quite a bit as well um and i don't i don't know who is right i mean i don't know that terry shivo and michael shivo had those conversations i don't know what her upbringing was so at the end of the day there's still some open questions um Mm -hmm. like i said earlier bobby Bobby Schindler, who is Terry Schiavo's brother. I don't know if he's older or younger. I think younger. Um, he has founded a, created a foundation and continues to be very active in um, end of life um, type of conversations and advocacy and support. So Michael Schiavo buried Terry Schiavo um, after her death. And the, the headstone is really interesting. It says, mm-hmm. Schiavo, Teresa Marie, beloved wife. No mention of daughter, no mention of anything else. Uh, born December 3rd, 1963. Departed this earth February 25th, 1990. At peace, March 31st, 2005. I kept my promise. Oh. At the very bottom. Yeah. Whoa. So depending on what side you, you fall on, that could be either really, really touching, really a final tribute, or it could be the last middle finger to the in-laws. Yeah, it kind of feels like that last one. She didn't die in 1990. I just like, by any definition of death, was not dead. Right. So he Except says maybe de- socially, but... De- de- departed this earth, February 25th, 1990. What does that mean? That's so I don't know. weird. That yeah. seems like so. aggressive, like a like a passive aggressive slight at her parents. And, That's and, and, it's too and, bad. <laughs> and maybe not so passive. Maybe, maybe not so passive. A, maybe like a direct. A, an aggressive aggressive. Yeah, and it's oh. unusual. And this just speaks to the the, the animosity, right? Um, yeah. That I think was still really visceral. I mean, it's. I think it's unusual to. I've never seen a gravestone like that. <laughs> yeah, to kind of have your last, you know thumb in your eye to somebody being the gravestone you put on uh, yikes so anyway yeah. so that's a quick and dirty terry <laughs> teresa marie schiavo thanks for listening to this episode of bioethics for the people we can't do this podcast by ourselves we've tried and it's not pretty our team includes our research interns michaela kim madison foley and macy hutto special thanks to helen webster for social media and production support Our theme music was created and performed by the talented Chris Wright, friend to all, dad to two, and husband to one. Podcast art was created by Darian Goldenstall. You can find more of her work at dariangoldenstall.com. 
You can find more information about this episode and all of our previous seasons at bioethicsforthepeople.com. We love to connect with our listeners. All of our episodes can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share, and connect on social media. 